Pulse is all about candid conversations with local activists and organizers, electeds, and candidates that are impacting Greater Grand Rapids. And today on the show, I'm so excited to be introducing you to founder of The Hub Organize, candidate for the 86th State House District, and recent panelist with Oprah Winfrey's 60 Seconds, Lauren Taylor. So thank you so much for joining me today in the studio, Lauren. It's, glad, it's really good to have you here. Thank you, Denavia. I love the work you do, and I'm really happy to be here. So I've mentioned a little bit already some of your titles, um, but before we get into any of that, who is Lauren Taylor before and beyond those roles? You know, I've just really always been somebody who's looking for a place where I can do the most good. And I know what people say, do-gooder and all of that, but it's true. I think right now what's happening in politics and really in our lives is we're all stepping up to the plate and we're looking at who we are. What are we doing? Why are we doing what we're doing? And I think that's, that's what matters. When I think about who I am, this is who I am. I'm somebody who cares legitimately about knowing who you are. Because if we don't know each other, how can we make progress? And how can we affect change in our community and in people's real lives? So, so how did you get there? I mean, where are you from? What led to you being that person that you are today who generally and genuinely cares? Sure. Well, I really think that probably it started with my mother. My mother has this amazing sense of cutting right to what's best about a person. Mm -hmm. it's her, that's her mission in life. She's amazing with kids. And I think for anybody who has kids, you know, like your, your amazing son, Brady. <laughs> I do, yeah. You're an amazing mom because you see what's great about him and you bring it out in him and you help people to be the best that they can be. So this was modeled for me from a very young age. I think when you're around people like that, you can't help but soak it in a little bit. And as somebody who wants to be a public servant, I think that's I, I think that's a job requirement, truly, to see where the need is, see what's best in a community and in a person's life, see what's not working, and do everything you can to represent them in their best interest so that they can thrive and have opportunity. So, so where where are you from? Are you from Grand Rapids? No, um, I've been here for 15 years, but I was born in Flint, Michigan. Actually, my family, uh, up to my great grandparents. Both sides are from Flint. I didn't grow up in Flint. I moved because of job opportunities for my dad outside of DC. It was really interesting uh, living in Fredericksburg is the place, Fredericksburg, Virginia. Living in Fredericksburg, Virginia for most of my childhood and then moving back to Owasso, Michigan, which is just outside of Flint, where a lot of people moved when Flint kind of went bust. I moved from a place that was really a melting pot. And there were people from all cultures, all economic backgrounds, every kind of person and language immigrants that you could think of to Owasso, Michigan, which was the last sundown town in, in the state of Michigan. So uh, going from there then to Grand Rapids, I came to Grand Rapids to go to Kendall. And uh, I had the opportunity to live downtown, <laughs> which at that time there was absolutely nothing downtown, but among, among artists and people who I related to. And evolving in this city and recognizing the values and where we have strengths and where we have room to grow has been, um, it's been a real journey. And I think mm. that we have a lot of opportunity to do good in our community. That's interesting. So you mentioned that you went to Kindle. Does that mean that you yourself are an artist? Yeah, through and through. <laughs> That's incredible. I didn't know that. So is that what you do before the activism and before the, the public service? Um, is that your work in the community? Are you right now actively working as an artist or is that your background in terms of your career as well? Sure. Yep. My background was in art and I was a professional photographer for 12 years. Um, but it was it was really something for me in my story as a person who's an artist and truly seeing the world in color and wanting to be out in it and express its beauty. That made it especially hard for me. And when I was in my 20s, I started getting migraines. And they became more and more frequent until eventually it was every day. And instead of being out in the world and seeing the beauty and embracing it and putting it into a piece of artwork, I live my life behind closed curtains. You know, really can't can't get out, can't tolerate the light, can't express myself, and not able to give anything back to the world. You know, when you're in chronic pain, you're you're out of it. It, it it's it's like you're dead, <laughs> really. You, the gifts that you have to offer the world, they're squelched. So I feel like being in a place now where my chronic pain condition is managed, 
I have an opportunity to get out and be active and be an activist and work for other people who can't be out of the house, who do have chronic pain that is unmanaged. So I, I feel like that's a big responsible. Those of us who can do, that we do do. So let's talk a little bit about what you've done. So when I first met you, Lauren, I believe it was last year, I was introduced to you through an organization that you had then just founded, which was called The Hub. Mm -hmm. Now tell me a little bit about The Hub, um, Organized West Michigan. Well, after the election of 2016, I think a lot of us were really quite devastated for so many reasons, and um, all of them legitimate. For me, I kind of put my head down and thought, all right, where do we go from here? How do we make things better? What is the big picture hope for us? And I thought that it was in connecting people. The divisions for me were the biggest source of the problem that I could see that led to the result of the 2016 election. So getting into activism, we had amazing groups popping up all over the place, great leaders in Indivisible, in the Kosecha movement. There's, a, there's been a movement, a grassroots movement, for every crisis, every issue that we're facing. But most of them were disconnected from one, another, from one another. And I found that instead of people who are natural leaders making more and more and more groups and being in their silos and then fighting each other for the opportunity to present an issue and a solution for it, what we really needed was a conduit for people who could connect the groups, who could reach out to the leaders encourage the work that they were doing and encourage those connections. You know, we have a lot of people to lift up in this community who are doing amazing work. We can't all do it all, and we shouldn't all be doing it separately. We've got to work on those intersectional issues and bring our groups and our efforts together so that we can make a difference. We don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. We need to keep the wheel moving together. So absolutely. So what have you seen since starting the hub? What have you seen kind of accomplished and formed in that space? Like what's been the result? Sure. I've seen an amazing amount of growth. Um, I would say that the first major issue we tackled after establishing those relationships was the Charlottesville March. And we, we I think, did a good job turning out a big number of people. We had more than a thousand people overnight and uh, the conversation was started among 50 grassroots organizers and people within the Democratic Party while that live feed was coming, coming in from Charlottesville. So we tackled it right away. We were all very passionate, but we made mistakes. We didn't get it all right. We recognized in the planning of that and in the aftermath of how it went, what went right, what went wrong, and how uh, how much we really did need to grow and learn a lot more about the issues that we were standing up for. So I'm anyway. I'm I'm seeing that um, you know in the in the approach after that we we recognized those issues. We got together. We started talking about it. We had some really hard conversations. Really hard. You know, looking into ourselves and saying, okay, I'm not as great as I thought I was. I don't know as much as I thought I did. I, uh, uh, you know, that issue was about, uh, obviously, it was about racism. And we don't get off the hook in this community just because we think we've talked about it enough and we're race, we're, <laughs> we, do, we can't let ourselves off the hook just because we think we're progressive, just because we think we're making change. It's, it's not enough. We really have to go deeper, look at ourselves, and figure out what we don't know. You know, so with that particular um, event, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure listeners remember the, the the riot that occurred in Charlottesville, and and for many, I think, consider it a pivotal time in our country's history, where you see a race riot emerge with one race, right? right. There's one race having a race riot. You see a certain group of whites having a Unite the Right rally, and then another group of of white individuals in Charlottesville who then come to actual violent encounter because of their disagreement with how unfair, how toxic, or how violent, or how dangerous these, um, these displays of political ideology have come out to be. And in Grand Rapids, when you decided, okay, here in the hub, we are going to practice this new age digital organizing, right? Because this is what I love to talk about with organizers. 
how easy it's become in 2018 to organize, right? We create a Facebook message, add a couple people, we can vote on things, we can decide who's gonna bring the megaphone, who's gonna show up with what group, we can all commit to sharing this event 2,100 times over text, and voila, you got this magical movement, right? It's incredible. It's, it's incredible, right? The power of the tools at our disposal. And so the hub didn't even have to essentially be an old school place with a building that's brick and mortar with an actual body and agenda meetings. It's a Facebook page. Yeah, just it's had to be people. It's a digital community. It's, it's, it's really encompassing the people that sit in this, this group. And in 24 hours, you said, you guys decided we're going to have an event called Standing in Solidarity with Charlottesville. And I you know, pulled it up here in my notes. You're standing in solidarity with the people who were combating the ralliers in Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. And in standing in solidarity with them, you're going to um, present yourselves at Rosa Parks Circle and say that racism is unacceptable and the rhetoric that they're using on the right is dangerous as a big kind of smorgasbord of progressive organizations. And I, and I don't mean to be assumptive in saying progressive. I just heard you say Democrats and grassroots organizers. And so I was just saying, of this group, I'm assuming it to be progressive. Folk. Right. Yeah. Um, and what came of that was a great turnout, but some lessons learned. Absolutely. To you. Now, what do you think, where do you think you guys missed the mark or had a tough lesson to learn in that? Because if listeners don't sure. know what you mean when you say, oh, we learned a lot, I've li I learned this and learned that. No, it's, what pretty, does that really, it's specific. What does that mean if listeners drove by and saw thousands of people at Rosa Parks Circle and said, oh, it looks like a success to us. Those organizers did a great job. Sounds like a win, right? Yeah. I think a lot of hearing you reflect on it sounds like for you it was a difficult event in hindsight. It was difficult for from? a lot of us. It, it was difficult for a lot of us because, um, you know, we, we realized that there's a big difference between recognizing a problem and giving yourself, going ahead and giving yourself a pat on the back for showing up and mm -hmm. actually addressing the problem. Saying that we're not racist doesn't make us not racist. So what I'm proud of and what we have tried to learn from that is that right away we recognize that this is only a start. Doing a march is only the beginning to say, hey, we're here, we see what's happening, and we do want to be part of making it better. But what we learned ultimately is that white people and white progressives who want to do better can't force the solution on the people who it affects the most. Wow, I love that. So outside of learning in this particular event that a march is not enough, that there's more work to be done, what comes next? Is so, that why you sure. started your campaign for State House, or what came after um, the March is Not Enough? Well, I didn't start the campaign for State House just because of Charlottesville, but um, oh, one of the responses we had to do more than just the March, we, um, we gathered as many of those grassroots organizers and organizers in the party to do, uh, you and I had the great opportunity with National Equity Project mm -hmm. to uh, really do some introspective work and take some personal responsibility for making our own separate organizations um, more aware of how we can do a better job with it. And I think that we've seen some real results with that. Um, just last night there was an amazing, amazing event. What was that called? Um, Justice, it was about the elections and it brought together several PACs who wanted to use the November elections to further progressive goals and especially uh, goals for equity community and the people's campaign. So people who are um, underserved that are often overlooked by both political parties. So grassroots organizing and uh, volunteers coming out and taking, taking responsibility for their roles in making the change that we want to achieve happen. Not just following the lead of candidates and not just following the lead of, um, of parties, but saying, these are our issues, mm -hmm. we're hitting the streets too, we're asking you to stand up for this. Not just listening to what you say you want to do, we're telling you what's real for us. I think that's a huge amount of growth. Absolutely. So let's skip ahead here really quickly. Um, how do people, how do listeners uh, find out more about the Hub or connect with it if they're interested in, in continuing uh, this discourse about sure, the Hub? Sure, sure. There's a Hub Facebook page, but there's also a group, and the group is private because we do a lot of organizing it. So if you request to join the Hub, then we'll look and see if you're kind of mm -hmm. legit or if you're 
um, looking to tear down our efforts, and then we'll add you. And everyone is welcome. We're, um, we're trying to be less divisive, bring people more together, and unite around our shared values. So find it on Facebook. And those people that you're bringing together, what are the particular prerequisites for those? What are those ideals that you're uniting around? Is it being a Democrat? Values. Is it being, you know, what are sure. the ideals that you, who are those people that you're talking about? Yeah. Um, you don't just have to be a Democrat, although I will say that more and more people are becoming Democrats and looking for their values within the Democratic Party because traditionally, when you look at the platform and what people who are Democrats stand for, mm -hmm. it is what we believe in. Um, equality, opportunity, standing up for the people, being the people's party. And right now what I'm seeing within the Democratic Party is a real effort to get back to that. You know, the Democratic Party does stand for something. And we are, as people who are Democrats, making the party a better party. And I see a lot of growth in the leadership as well. It's, um, the rules have changed. Things have changed in our society and in our electoral uh, culture, especially in the campaign world. We can't just be about winning elections anymore and expect to win elections. We've got to be about making a difference. And Democrats care about making a difference in real people's lives. We are rejecting corporate interests. We're rejecting huge donations. We're getting in touch with the people who matter. And uh, the people who matter aren't just the rich ones. So what do you say to those who, who feel like, OK, Lauren, you are, and, and excuse my insensitivity if, if it comes off as insensitive, but what do you say to those people who challenge the sincerity of your commitment to this um, underserved and overlooked communities? I think that's the phrase you used when you described mm -hmm. the people last night you guys are focusing on, right? Um, you talked about interest not just serving the wealthy and the rich, and you talked about um, specifically um, doing a better job of making the Democratic Party a party of the people. Sure. And what do you say to those people who say, okay, you're another rich white woman who wants to help those poor people that are disabled or LGBT or Hispanic or black? What, what do you say to that, right? How, um, how do you confront your own role in where we are in this political climate in the face of those that say, um, you're just a lot like of everybody the, else? Yeah, a lot yeah. of the, 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 like, I've heard it said before that Christian white women are the reason Trump's in office, huh. right? Statistically, right? Christian white women did that, right? It's the, the rich white women who totally like think the world is this perky, perfect place and racism was over because of the rock, right? right? And then a lot of them got saw Trump get elected and was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to wake up now because there's a problem again, right? Right? And, and I've heard this sentiment kind of mumbled in the dark, not in, in more public spaces, but oftentimes in rooms where it's just me and a bunch of other activists and organizers for um, grassroots causes. What do you say to those people um, who have that sentiment and have that feeling? You know, all I can do is be really honest. Mm -hmm. um, I've, some, I've had some hard moments. You know, I, I, how do you say it? I think to learn about where you need to grow and do a better job of serving people and putting your money where your mouth is, you have to go through trial by fire. And in an effort, in an effort to make a difference um, in issues of, of race and um, equity in particular, I realize that it's it's not really that easy to break into that kind of work. You have to prove yourself along the way in order to be accepted as someone who can be part of doing that work. Mm -hmm. You know, and um, I don't I don't know. This just isn't really about me. If this was if this was about me, I couldn't do it. Running for office and getting involved in, in, this, in this movement that we're both working for, it requires a lot of sacrifice, you know? I'm, I'm doing this because it's, it's personal for me. Um, with, my, with my health, with the health history I have, um, I have experienced my own kind of suffering. We just had a conversation last night about empathy. Whatever people are going through, whether it's whether it's you or whether it's me, our issues can be different. But we have all had our own individual struggles. You know what I mean? Some people have some people have 
insurmountable stru struggles in one way, and some have insurmountable in others. And in our community, in the uh, equity community, it's systemic. It's not, my struggles may not be your struggles, but I care about your struggles. And I need, I need an ally in you to help me do the work that needs to be done just as much as you need an ally in me. So being honest and real with people, that's the best I can do. And so I, I, I often ask candidates this, which is when you're one of those individuals who is working, um, you know, almost tirelessly to advocate for any kind of community that you are not a particular member of, right? right. If I'm in a part of a movement for my Latino brothers and Latina brothers and sisters, right. I have to work around the clock to make sure I'm connected to that community before I dare step out and say that I have the authority to speak mm -hmm. with or for them, right? And I feel the same way when it comes to my brothers and sisters in the LGBT community, whether it's, or, or individuals in, in the rural community who may be struggling with the opioid crisis. Well, I can't speak for that community because I just don't know it, right? Right? right, and oftentimes, if I'm going to lead in a space where they require advocacy, it requires some type of connection to them. Right. How do you maintain an ongoing connection to the communities that you have to speak for um, as you kind of work for this office? Yeah, How does that work for you? It's not easy. It's hard because I live in Cascade, Michigan, and frankly, it's almost all white, and my district mm -hmm. is 85 percent white, mm -hmm. almost all white. Mm -hmm. But I'm. I'm learning from people who are generous enough with their time to share their life experience with me. Mm -hmm. You know, it, that's, that's where when I say that I need an ally in you as much as you need an ally in me, I'm the lucky one there. You know what I mean? An opportunity to understand somebody else's perspective and someone else's story, that's a gift to me, not the other way around. When I go to Lansing and I stand up for issues that matter to this community, it's not, it's not just my district that I'm representing. You know, the people in my district need represented, and I will represent them thoroughly, absolutely, 100%. I care about the issues of the people in my district because they're specific to individual people, and it's my job to represent their lives. Flipping this seat for Michigan and having another Democrat in Lansing gives me the opportunity to make Michigan better as a whole. Mm -hmm. There's no seat that's unwinnable, and there's no seat that can't make this state better. Agreed. So tell me, you, you mentioned that your job would be to speak for the issues that are particular to the people in your district. What mm -hmm. are those issues? Well, we do have a lot of, um, my district is split between Kent and Ionia County. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to think of what affects people there because we have every kind of background there. There's a lot of rural, there's Cascade and Ada. The people aren't the same. We have a farming community there that's really important. Education is a big one for me and for the people in my district. Betsy DeVos lives a mile from my house, and so does Justin Mosh. And they've been terrible for our education system, and especially for public school teachers and, and students who don't get what they need when the money that we need in our public schools are siphoned off to for-profit charter schools. Even if they don't say for-profit, a charter school spent, sends most of their money to consulting firms that decide what that school will do. So we're putting money in the pockets of these consulting firms who have their own agenda. That money needs to go to the schools who need them. And there are a lot of schools in Ionia and Kent County who need them a heck of a lot more than kids with privilege and parents who can afford to send their kids to a private school. If people want to send their kids to a private school, they can, that's great. And parents need to be able to make the decision about what's best for their kids. Absolutely, 100%. And there can be charter schools, fine. But we've got to put the needs of kids that go to public schools. We need every school for every kid to be the best that it can be. Every neighborhood school needs to be the best that it absolutely can be before we even think about sending a cent of taxpayer dollars into a school that is supported, that, it, that goes into supporting private corporations, private profit, and the agenda of something that doesn't align with people who pay the taxes. I don't have kids, but I'm a stakeholder in this. I'm proud of our schools, really proud of our schools. And frankly, from a, from a strictly selfish point of view, 
the property values, really, if we're going to talk about just nuts and bolts and something that people can agree on, no matter whether they have kids or whatever, property values will drop if, if public schools are worse. I think that um, really we have to focus on what makes the most difference to Michigan families. And uh, so education is big. Infrastructure in our area, especially broadband internet. In rural Michigan, so many people don't even have access, they can't even fill out job applications because they have to do that online. That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. We need to serve our people better so that our people can grow and thrive and have the opportunities they deserve. This is America. When we're talking about those kinds of infrastructure issues that affect the job market, then we talk about healthcare. Healthcare is huge everywhere. If we want to have 21st century jobs, then we need people who are well-educated that can afford to be educated, first of all. If you can't afford an education, if you're saddled with college debt, if you're unhealthy, if our roads are so bad that places that companies like Google and Amazon won't bring their businesses here, how is our state ever going to thrive? How are individuals ever going to thrive? And students, students need access to counselors. Every student, every school needs access to a college preparation or job training counselor, a social worker, who will put them in the right direction so that they can follow their dreams. And so, what's your personal connection you feel to the issues? Because I love candidates that can speak well to what their constituents are facing, right? Mm -hmm. But generally, when someone answers the call to leadership, it's because something personally affected them, right? Usually when you get the, the person running for the school board, it's because something happened to their kid. If you have the, the man running to run this agricultural community, it's because something happened on his farm. Oftentimes, you have people that have had a personal incident or something that, that called them to step up. I, I love your, your awareness of the issues but I think listeners may also be wondering, what was your personal call to do this? Was it your the changes around healthcare? Was it necessarily around what's been happening with women? Have you had a personal connection to the issues of your district that have led to Lauren Taylor for state rep? Yeah, healthcare is the biggest one in my personal story. Um, I told you a little bit about my migraines. I go to an amazing place in Michigan. I know a lot of people probably listening have had migraines before, and yeah. there's not a lot of hope for most people with migraines because when you go to the doctor, even neurologists that say that people with migraines are half of their patients, you get about four options for drugs. And then that's it, you're screwed. Poor baby, you have a headache, boo-hoo, boo-hoo. Yeah. If you wanna have success in treating your migraines, you have to go to a place like, in Michigan we have a world-renowned migraine institute called Michigan Head Pain and Neurological Institute. But it costs a lot of money to go there. And for someone with a pre-existing condition, cannot afford it because you don't have to be covered. Health insurers don't have to cover you. They just don't. And if they do cover you, you get practically nothing. So you suffer. When the Affordable Care Act happened, health insurers had to cover people like me and millions of others who have pre-existing conditions. So I found I had the resources to go to Michigan Head Pain Neurological Institute, and we found a treatment plan that worked really well for me. So I could get out and be a productive part of society. I could have a life again, and I could start doing some good again. I was so grateful for that. Like I said earlier, if you can do, you do do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> About just as soon as we found uh, some help for my migraine situation, the 2016 election happened. And I tell you, when my health care was threatened, I came out I came out and I came out strong because I was not going down with the fight and I didn't think anybody else should have to go down easy either. It really it really ended up though when um, Justin Mosh voted against our health care. Do you remember that mm -hmm. last last summer? I saw a lot of outcry on social media, uh -huh. I saw a lot of response and attendance in his town halls. There were people that were absolutely livid. Well, yeah, because that's our lives they're messing with. I had a conversation with him just before that vote, at his town hall before that, and I, it, it was coming up, and I said, you know, you're our representative, and our lives are in your hand here. I am a real person. I want you to know what's going on with me, and your job is to protect us. I said it two or three times, protect us. You know, and he nodded his head, and he said, yeah, yeah, I will. Well, he lied. He didn't protect us. He threw us under the bus. And, you know, he talks about his principles and being so principled in his libertarian stance. He betrayed them, too. 
So that changed everything for him. He got a lot of credit for an awful long time that he didn't deserve. And I know the seat that you're running for is not actually in opposition to Justin Amash. Have you endorsed anyone in particular who is running against Justin Amash? And what does that look like for you? We have two very... Because I've seen you post very uh, candidly on your personal page and the hub that you are committed to getting Justin Amash out of office. What are you doing for that right now? Um, I am. We have two very good candidates uh, running against Justin Amash. I'd be very happy to support both of them. Um, Kathy Albro is running and she has a strong progressive platform. And uh, Fred Wooden is running, and he's proven himself as a moral leader in our community. I'm also really supportive of Winnie Brinks. She's mm-hmm. not running against Amash either. Um, her district overlaps mine. And Rachel Hood is running in the 76th district for a state representative. Mm-hmm. I'll be really thrilled to join our allies in the, in the House who are already working really hard for the issues we believe in. That's awesome. Well, you know what, Lauren? I know you've been very busy lately, not just through the hub, but even most recently with your encounter with um, my particular girl crush, woman crush, Oprah Winfrey. Ah. She came to West Michigan for a 60 minutes panel. And people, listeners of 97.3 have heard about this plenty of times. We had Kim Harris on, we had Wesley Watson on the show, um, all who spoke about their experience as panelists and, and engaging in. All that is Oprah Winfrey, right? Did you hug her? Did you smell her? Shoot, uh, hug her, <laughs> hug her. I can still feel her body on the side of my leg. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we, I, we, we had, had to share my, my enthusiasm for Oprah Winfrey. Oh man, I, I, I think I still haven't washed the pants I was wearing. Oh we shared a seat. Uh, that part wasn't on the show. That that was probably the most amazing part of the experience is getting to know a person who you see on TV and you think you know and then really feeling firsthand who they are as a person. She is exactly as great as she seems. But uh, yeah, everybody was crowded around her. I tried to hang back a little bit and wait my turn. So I kind of sat behind her and she said, no, no, sit here. And she grabbed me by the arm and actually yanked me down into a seat that I didn't think existed because her butt was already in it. (laughs) I love that. So she's she's like everybody's auntie, like all the time. That's Amazing. how she just comes off, right? It's just we, nothing yeah. Love. We sat there for about 10 minutes breathing each other's air yeah. and holding on to each other. That's incredible. So that's essentially how you launched your campaign, right? At the watch party for the follow-up to the 60 minutes segment. Is, is that correct? Uh, we haven't really had an official launch, okay. uh, but I wanted to involve the people who had been closest to that experience okay. uh, to let them know that that was coming. I don't think I would have run for office if we hadn't had that experience together. Um, Really, I think what we need to do is set an example for the people who were watching 60 Minutes. I mean, a national audience, 325 million people, I think, is who we have in this country. Being able to watch that show Mm -hmm. and seeing us find some common ground, even if the common ground is just that we'll look each other in the eye and talk to each other. We're still we're still talking. We've got 13 out of 14 people with that group. They've got an online conversation. We've had probably 150 messages on it just today. Wow! And it's all day, all night. I don't share all of their views. In fact, for some of them, I don't share very many at all. But I listen. I care where they're coming from. Um, I need to understand their views because I'm not always right about everything. And if I only stick to myself and what I know. I can't serve people that way. I need to know people. So yeah, for, for some background for listeners who may not know in particular, that this panel was of 13 individuals, but it was particularly um, polarized, uh-huh. right? Half progressive Democrats, half Republicans, some independents, so that Oprah could get a nice mix of this West Michigan political divide, um, as she called it. And it was comprised of individuals from Grand Rapids, Muskegon, all these different areas, had um, contrasting political ideals. Very. Right? And so if you saw that 60 minute segment, th- these individuals kind of talked through their experience, their viewpoints, all particularly around the most recent Trump administration. And on that segment, I, I believe you had this really heartbreaking moment with viewers where you talk about your situation with healthcare. Mm-hmm. And all these people in America are watching you talk about your, your micro, my, migraines, right? And and for, for even now, for listeners on the show who may have just come to understand why you're running for the 86th district because of decisions that are being made about your health care and how they affect you and Obamacare and having affordable access to, to really just live your life. Um, 
how do you feel like uh, that kind of parlays into how you plan to act as an actual elected official, right? Because essentially you have to do a whole lot of listening, yeah, even as you talk about now, to people that you don't agree with. And quite frankly, looking at the setup of the House right now, um, you have to do a lot more listening to yeah, people that you right. don't agree with if a lot of these seats don't flip. Right now, Republicans have the upper hand in the House, in the Senate, and in the governor's seat. And, and I know you talked about some people that you're supporting there to, to encourage some seats to flip so Democrats have more power. But essentially, if you won, you'd still be walking into a situation oh, where I would. you wouldn't I even will. be 50-50 with people that you don't agree with. But in fact, you'd be the minority. What we need to do is encourage people to do the right thing. If Republicans are still going to have the majority, then their constituents and the people who are Democrats in the House need to help them to live up to our values that we share in our community. Republicans and Democrats disagree on a whole lot of things, but when it comes to doing what's right for people, we have got to work together. We've got to dig way deeper than these really surfacey political, I mean, we're just, we're just politicking here. If you're not working for what's best for people's lives, then all you're doing is politicking, and that never helped anybody. So when I go into the House, I will work with people on the areas where our values overlap. And where our values don't interlap, overlap, I want to understand where they're coming from so that we can find a way to uh, put the focus back on people and not on partisan politics. A lot of what I'm doing in this campaign is getting out into the community and finding out what is real to people. What's your story here in this corner of Ionia that's like an hour from where I live? What's your story on this farm where you have these apples and, your, and these cornfields, what you're growing? What's your struggle living that life? Because that's not my life either. But a representative has got to have first just hand-to-hand, eye-to-eye, communication with people so that they can understand the world outside of just their immediate world. No one person you elect to office has had every experience. Your representative has got to understand that they're a public servant, not a politician. What's the difference? A public servant serves the people. A politician wins elections. I'm a grassroots organizer first. I'm a person first. I'm a good person first. Good people care about people. So in this campaign, it's more than just about winning one election. We've got to bring people together. We've got to get people out of their comfort zones, out of their bubbles, get people talking again and seeing people eye to eye and finding out what's real to them so that we can find our values. Because this surface thing, this is what I do for a living, you know, this, people ask you what you do. Usually they talk about what you do for a living. They don't ask you who you are. But who we are as Americans and as people in our community, that's what matters most. We've got to stop just talking about what divides us. Talk about what brings us together. That's what I'm after in this race, in this election. Finding out people's stories, where they're coming from. Saying, hey, we've got a lot more in common than we thought. When I go to the door of someone who's a Republican, I actually had a really cool experience recently. I went up to this uh, house that was, you know, we, we pick which doors we go to, and we have some idea we think of where they stand politically. And we thought this person was supposed to be a pretty strong Democrat. And we walked up to the door, and all the windows leading to the door had, um, mostly they were looking down the barrel of a gun. One side said, um, I don't have anything worth getting shot over. Lots of, um, lots of libertarian signs. Really, all signs pointed to we're about as different as we could be. I knocked on the door any, anyway, because if that guy's going to be my constituent, I need to know what he thinks. I need to know where we overlap, and I need to know where we work together. So I opened the door, and I told him I saw his signs, and hey, I saw those, and I, I laughed a little bit, not at him, but because what would I even be thinking, talking to someone who I know doesn't share my views? Mm -hmm. But what I'm thinking is that we do share a lot of the same views. They may not be the same on that one issue, but I think we could talk about that issue and say, hey, you're, you're focused on um, Second Amendment rights, meaning that you should be able to have every kind of gun you want and with no regulations. I'm focused on it a different way. What we really want is we want to protect people against gun violence. Your solution is different than mine, but let's talk and see if we can work something out. Because the 
first solution we each come up with might not be the right one, you know? So I went to the door, he opened it, and I said, I'm a Democrat, but I think we've got more in common than you think. And he invited me right in. That's interesting, Lauren. And, and I know that um, before your campaign announcement, and even since you started the Hub, um, I've kind of seen and followed both online and offline your interest in uh, people, right? What, what issues plague people? Mm -hmm. You're unafraid of showing up at that city commission meeting and speaking on behalf of that issue happening in Grand Rapids, even if you're not a resident of Grand Rapids, right? You're like, okay, it's just not right to handcuff an 11 year old girl, right? Or in the school system where, you know, I don't know if it was Forest Hills or something that you went there as well and, and just adamantly spoke out against it and it was in like articles written afterwards, like, Hey, these are how upset residents were, and, and your name comes up in these spaces, right? And, and even particularly with uh, the 11-year-old girl, I watched how how hard you pushed and fought for not just the, the political response to that, being how we engage youth, but the, the humane and, and personal response to that, being, hey, Denavia, how do we get Christmas gifts to this girl's house? And then going over to the house and driving with a little girl and things like that. I've, I've seen and witnessed you in these spaces, right? And I wonder, as you run for office as a state representative, how do you maintain that, right? Because I see all these people who are public servants first and turn into politicians. Right. And I'm always curious, and I know there's always, and I can only speak from, from the outside because I'm not a politician, but I'm always curious how that transition takes place yeah. and how people who start the way you, you are now kind of get to a different place. What are you doing to, to make sure that doesn't happen? I mean, yeah, how do you safeguard yourself? Sure. The good person part of you from the political interest that you're going to be met with once you, if you get to office. I think the sad truth is not a lot of people do start out wanting to be a public servant. Hmm. Frankly, I think a lot of people say they do. There are plenty of people who don't even say they want to get into politics to serve people. For a lot of people, it is about a career. And it is about power. Yeah, and so it's about in their, their occupation, right? I had this office, I've served in this seat, right. and now I gotta go here. Black and white, I look good on paper, elect me so that I can make rich people richer. <laughs> That's not me, <laughs> you know? So um, I, I do hear you though, and I, I, I find it frustrating uh, when I think about like uh, the incredible work that Barack Obama did. And now to hear people that are slamming him saying he didn't do enough. And that looks mm. to a lot of people mm -hmm. like he sold out. But you know what? The truth is, you get into these situations where, like you said earlier, the Republicans have the power. If I go into Congress, the State House, and it looks anything like it does today, I'll be hugely outnumbered. My job is to move the needle. I gotta move the needle. We can't change everything all at once. And that's very frustrating. When I talk to people whose views align with mine that are in the State House, they're working their butts off to change things, to make the change that we actually need. And who are those people? I'm thinking of Winnie Brinks first and foremost, David LeGrand, both of them incredible advocates for us, for all of us. When there's an issue that affects people, they're right there in the front lines and they fight like hell. They fight like hell. They don't have everything flipped right away. They can't. But every time something comes up, and the Republicans, the Republicans have the majority. They can do whatever they want. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if anybody speaks up on the Democratic side. David and Winnie don't have to say anything. They don't have to say anything because their voice does. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be heard. They're in the minority, but they do it anyway. They do it anyway. And they think about what they can do to move the needle. Sometimes it moves a lot, sometimes it moves a little, sometimes we just have to focus on voting the people out who don't represent the people and getting better people in. Oh, we're right. all trying. But the difference I see, I've seen even just following uh, you in the community as an activist and organizer and following Winnie Brinks and David LeGrand is that while Democrats as a core tenant of their activities in office, I don't see them going to a house on the west side to drop off Christmas presents to a little black girl with no cameras. Yeah. And then yeah. I see you do that, right? And, and I think a lot of times we think that we won't see that because we keep having more rich white politicians running to, you know, stage up other rich white politicians in Lansing and in D.C. And, and I guess sometimes I wonder 
is this the direction we're going to keep moving in, or it is everything really going to be? Is everything ever going to really change? Right. It, it, Even Davis District, the seventy fifth, right. has more minorities than whites, and we still have a rich white man in that seat. Right. I think, and it's brought, uh, been brought up time and time again. Yeah, you're you're right. We absolutely do have to change that. I think that part of the reason, uh, the really hard fact of why politicians are politicians and not public servants is money and government. Hmm. In the short time that I've been running as a candidate, I'm recognizing that more of my time has to go to raising money mm -hmm. than knocking on doors because you can't you can't win without money. You can't fund. Oh, man, I've been trying to have this conversation with candidates right now, Lauren. I wish you could have sat in a meeting last week. This is really what I've been saying, that it takes so much money to run for office, that it all does. the outreach stuff is just going to fall by the wayside if you don't do that first and foremost. And you won't have time to do outreach stuff. Oh. You won't have time to learn about people. You won't have time to make people's lives better. All you have, to, you <laughs> have time to do is to bicker and fight about who's going to win the next election oh, and who's going to get the most money from corporate PACs. You're preaching to the choir. Uh -huh. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> so Lauren, is there anything else that you would love for listeners to know about you before we wrap up today on Political Pulse? What's one thing you would like to leave listeners with, whether they're in your district or not, if they want to learn more about who their representative is or get involved in politics, even just when they need to vote? Um, what would you like to leave listeners with today on Political Pulse? You know what I want people to know is that change begins with us. Wherever you are in your life and whatever you're struggling with, harness that. Harness your passion. Get out there. Be part of the change you want to see in the world. That's why I'm doing this, and I know that we all can do it if we get in and we do it together. Wow, thank you so much. I encourage people who tune in to 97.3 The Beat to continue to give us the information and connect us with the stories of individuals and policies and events and practices that are impacting you in your neighborhood. Feel free to inbox them to 97.3 The Beat Political Pulse so we can keep having conversations with more individuals just like Lauren Taylor and other organizations that are active in uh, this August primary election and also this November general election as well. Um, for today, I encourage guests to get out. Come on down to Creston Brewery tonight. There will be a uh, meet and greet for West Michigan organizers. I know there are some women coming from Kalamazoo, some women coming from Detroit, just to really have a chit chat about what's been going on in the different communities. Um, and I encourage people who, who care to come on down to Crested Brewery, buy a drink, and have some fun talking about that with me and those other ladies. Um, we're going to wrap up, but thank you so much for joining me today, Lauren Taylor. I'm really glad I had you on the show. If you want to hear more or you want to listen to more of this interview, you'll be able to find it right on 97.3 The Beat. Go to the Facebook page, check it out, uh, like the video, share it, and then, of course, drop your questions and comments uh, right in the thread. And I'll make sure to tag Lauren so she can connect with each and every one of you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Political Pulse with the Navigator. You are listening to 97.
can talk about that. I know. We can talk about that. I know. Oh, and okay. if, it's, if it's live, then we definitely say something wrong. <laughs> oh, sure we did. <laughs> like, really quick, let me just say thank you so much to everyone who watched on the live stream video. If you have some questions for Lauren or for me or some things that you really just popped into your head that you want to share, feel free to drop those in the thread. I'm always fascinated by the conversations that happen after the show. So feel free to drop your thoughts down below and to share this video with your networks. Uh, and keep tuning in every Tuesday at noon and every Friday at 5 p.m. This is Clip the Pulse. <laughs> I almost had the opportunity.